A word before we get started with today's episode of NTM Talk. While it may go without saying, it's important to remember that all views expressed in this podcast are the opinions based on the experiences of the participants and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have questions related to your own health, please contact your provider. This is Dr. Colin Swenson. And Dr. Wendy Drummond. And we're here today on NTM Talk to talk about bronchiectasis, what it is and how it relates to non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. So Wendy, to sort of kick off this talk, we were were just talking before uh, we started recording about the challenges with bronchiectasis. And why, you know, from from, from your standpoint, you've treated a lot of this obviously in the past. Why do you think that this is so challenging? Well, one of the reasons I think it's so challenging is because the most common symptoms that people present with, for example, cough, it can be chronic productive cough, shortness of breath, uh, fatigue can really um, mimic a lot of other uh, underlying pulmonary conditions. And Mm -hmm, so I think, and, and you can probably speak to this even a little bit better as a pulmonologist because you see a lot of these referrals first, but I think, um, you know, a lot of these people present to their primary care physician. Um, they may get diagnosed with asthma even before having pulmonary function tests get done. Yep. They undergo a treatment course for asthma or even COPD, and they may go for years without really identifying the correct diagnosis. I think that's one of the frustrating things as well for not only not only the treating physician, pulmonologist like myself, but also for patients. You know, the diagnostic journey is just so uh, it's so long and convoluted. And like you say, misdiagnosis happens so frequently. Patients getting, you know, misdiagnosed with, you know, COPD, even though they never smoked or never had tobacco smoke exposure um, or asthma, even though they don't have any other symptoms or, or stigmata of asthma. So I, I, I fully hear you. That is part of the frustration on the diagnostic journey. Um, and to that point, I mean, a lot of these patients don't really end up with a good diagnosis until what, 10 years? Yeah, I I think that may even be average for so many patients. And, you know, so it leads to a lot of frustration, anxiety, um, because no one can seem to nail down the diagnosis and, and, and thereby getting them started on an appropriate treatment course so that they feel better. So, Wendy, how do you, I mean, I, I certainly have my way, I think everybody has their way of, of conveying what bronchiectasis is to patients, but how do you typically explain it to your patients? What is it? Well, I, I really explain to them that bronchiectasis uh, really is a, a structural airway disease, and, and you know, I'm usually showing them some sort of picture. Which unfortunately we can't do on a podcast. We can't do on a podcast. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry, everyone. But, um, you know, like a a coronal cut, which really shows a cross section of the lung and and the airways and explaining to them the differences between the airways and the lung tissue itself. And that, you know, the name itself really characterizes what this is. You know, the, the etymology comes from... Greek, meaning bronchus, plus the ecstasis, which refers to stretching or literally like stretched or dilated mm-hmm. airways. But more importantly, you know, 
what happens is that there's the development of this chronic disease process whereby they have these dilated airways that become that can become very inflamed. As a consequence, they're easily collapsible because they have um, these collapsible airways, these inflamed airways, they, um, they have impaired airway clearance. They're not able to mobilize their secretions the way uh, people without bronchiectasis are able to. And this subsequently can, results in a chronic daily productive cough. And this is one of the main uh, predisposing conditions to recurrent pulmonary infections, not just NTM lung disease that we'll talk about in its own episode, but just just other recurrent infections that, you know, usually get characterized as bronchitis. And and that's exactly right, which, you know, was dis- which Cold actually described. It's Cole's vicious cycle hypothesis, which is that as, exactly as you're saying, you have airway destruction and distortion, and that leads to bronchiectasis. That in turn leads to abnormal mucus clearance. So you get all of that junk or schmutz, as we say, sort of stuck down there, impacted in the lower airways. That, of course, leads to bacterial colonization and fungal colonization in some count, in some cases. Um, and that in turn, you know, sets up sort of the inflammatory cascade. And that, unfortunately, the end result of that is to uh, is more airway destruction and unfortunately worsening bronchiectasis over time. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, in terms of thinking about, well, how do we get to this diagnosis? How do we get to this diagnosis sooner? Because you and I do uh, a lot of provider education, as do yes, a lot of our colleagues, yeah. really trying to get the word out to internists, family medicine docs, you know, educating everyone that we can to say, all right, if your treatments are failing or your standard treatments are, are maybe, maybe not successful in helping your patient where they've had this diagnosis of asthma or COPD, starting with imaging, now I think... Um, a chest X-ray is where a lot of people start, but knowing that oftentimes we really don't see what we need to see on on plain films or plain imaging, that that they really do need to take that next step to a CT scan. Yep, yep. The chest X-ray, as I say, is a blunt little tool. It doesn't really give us the detail that allows us to see the airways and in turn the bronchiectasis. And a lot of, to your point, a lot of the um, sort of uh, uh, lower level bronchiectasis or more mild bronchiectasis will not be seen on a chest X-ray. And so generally what these patients want to ask for is a high resolution CAT scan of the chest. And that will in fact show the bronchiectasis. And just, you know, to 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 sort of drive home what bronchiectasis is, I love that I did not take Greek, Wendy. I love the di- I, I love the uh, description and I did not know that uh, ecstasis meant stretching um, in Greek. So that's kudos to you for for knowing that. I did not take Greek. But um, what uh, a colleague and friend of mine at, uh, at Johns Hopkins um, Kira Cohen, you may know her. Um, she likes to describe it as the, the airways as an upside down tree. So you sort of have, you know, the trachea, that is the trunk of the tree. And then you have, you know, of course, the left and right main stem bronchus. Those are, you know, the main branches of the tree. And then, you know, you they continue to divide until you get out to the little twigs out in the periphery. 
And what bronchiectasis is, is where those trig, twigs actually start to resemble the branches. And in very severe cases of bronchiectasis in certain kinds of conditions, they can actually resemble more the trunk. I mean, it can be very, very severe. And the issue is that those airways, they just do not, the mucus does not clear. You get ciliary dysfunction. Those are the little hair-like cells or little leg-like cells, depending on um, how you hear them described. And their whole job is to constantly be and move mucus up against gravity so that you can gen- you can uh, you can get it expectorated or up and out and unfortunately that elevator is broken in bronchiectasis well that's right and I, I love that analogy too and I, I actually use that that same analogy as that upside down tree in the chest and that you know there's a certain beat you know the ciliary the cilia have this this beat to them that help mobilize those secretions out of your airways and how if they're in, it's not just the stretching and dilatation to those airways. I, I think that the beat frequency is affected. You know, that whole mucociliary clearance mechanism is impaired and that's what leads to that, that chronic cough. Now, as you know, there are many patients do have a chronic productive cough, but there's all those, also this, this group of patients that refer to that we refer to as the dry bronchiectetics. And those may be those patients that they'll tell you that they feel like they have a lot of pulmonary congestion, but they're not able to mobilize their secretions. So, so they may cough, but they don't feel like they're coughing anything up. And it's really hard to get an expectorated sputum on these patients for analysis of their, Mm -hmm. their secretions. I see that all the time as well, um, especially in patients who have concomitant COPD, um, who do have a history of smoking. Oftentimes their mucus is just very thick, very viscous. They're not able to get it up and up and out. They oftentimes, just like you say, Wendy, will say, God, I feel it. It gets right to my throat and it won't come up. It won't come out. Uh, it, it can be very frustrating for them. And of course, for us, because as you mentioned, we'd like to send it for culture to figure out what's growing in there. Exactly. Um, you know, there's one thing to to finally identify that bron- that diagnosis of bronchiectasis. And I think that once that diagnosis is established, which is typically by imaging, but you and I both know that sometimes patients will have sputum specimens uh, obtained for other reasons, mycobacteria, uh-huh. like something like mycobacterium avium might be isolated. And that's what ends up leading to the CT scan and the subsequent diagnosis of the bronchiectasis. So there, there's some different ways where, where the, the diagnosis is, is finally established. But I think once it is finally established, it's really important that we understand why they have it. And I feel like this gets missed a lot. Um, that, that, okay, people jump to this diagnosis of bronchiectasis, but so important to understand, you know, do patients fall into this group of these non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis patients, or as you know, as someone who works in much more than I do in that CF world, sometimes we have these patients, 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80 years of age who actually have an underlying diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, Absolutely. but it's more of the adult non-classic presentation mm-hmm. and they've never, it's never been recognized. And it's so important to understand the why, why does someone have bronchiectasis? 
I completely agree with you because there are some things that we can do to modify the disease course if we know what's causing it. For instance, you know, some patients will come in and uh, we'll do a, you know, what we call, you know, a host susceptibility panel, just meaning we're looking for what caught testing to look for what caused the bronchiectasis. And, you know, some patients will have, for instance, an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Well, that's something that, you know, is potentially treatable. Other patients, as you say, may have what's called a CFTR mutation. Um, So this is one of the cystic fibrosis mutations. They don't have both of the mutations, so they don't have the full-blown disease of cystic fibrosis, but they may very well have disease typically related to the sinuses as well as bronchiectasis. And that can be a big clue as well. Um, And also, I'm sure, Wendy, you, you probably look at this when you look at the CAT scans, but the location of the bronchiectasis on the on the CAT scan can also tell us a lot, can't it? Well, absolutely. That's something that can give us so many clues. And I'm sure you really emphasize this in teaching of your residents and your fellows that, you know, if we see, for example, this this might be, you know, a very generic example, but if we see an upper low predominant distribution of bronchiectasis, that's one of those little clues that might suggests that someone may have cystic fibrosis. The the other thing is, is if they have multifocal bronchiectasis, let's say all five lobes are involved. That's, that's, I think, another clue. You mentioned alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. That's actually somewhat the opposite in the sense that you might see more of that bilateral lower lobe distribution. Mm-hmm. Similar to, say, a, um, a ciliary dyskinesia or a cartaginer syndrome, you may actually see a little bit more of a lower lobe predominant bronchiectasis, or even in some immunodeficiencies like common variable immunodeficiency, it may be a little bit more lower lobe. That's right. And I think uh, another category, which I think is a little more rare, and I've, I've had uh, a number of patients who've had inflammatory bowel disease, uh, where they've yeah. either had Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and, and they do have that more characteristic distribution. But I think the interesting thing about these patients, as you probably know, is that, and I think this is something where you just look at a lot of CT scans and you get more of a feel for it, but it, it has a certain look to it. It's not necessarily the same as someone with alpha-1, for example. And, and I think that's just an experiential thing over time. But certainly it's an important thing where uh, one of those historical features where if someone does have a history of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, they've got chronic cough and you know, recurrent pulmonary infections. And a lot of these patients are on immunosuppressive agents, but those recurrent pulmonary infections may have more to do with structural airway disease related to the chronic inflammation than they actually do to someone just being on an immunosuppressive medication alone. Absolutely. And uh, the distribution, as you say, you know, it's interesting. I have a number of patients in the bronchiectasis clinic who do have IBD or inflammatory bowel disease-related bronchiectasis. And their CTs, you're absolutely correct. They don't have the same look as, say, an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, even though the distribution may be similar. Um, The airways tend to be very thickened. Um, Sometimes the lower trachea is also involved in uh, in, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, say Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Um, And once, of course, as you say, you add on the immunosuppressive agents or 
of the immunomodulators, then you can sometimes get some very strange opportunistic infections in there. That's absolutely right. And I, I think we would be very remiss to um, to not mention some some of these other associations that we see with, you know, like secondary causes of bronchiectasis, like a recurrent pulmonary aspiration syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like it could be associated with reflux or just um, some sort of swallowing derangement. That's right. And that's part of the workup that we do in the clinic in the host susceptibility testing. We always want to get get an idea of reflux-related symptoms, both reflux as well as dysphagia. So we hear aspiration-related pneumonia or aspiration-related bronchiectasis or chronic bronchitis a lot. But the question is, what sort of aspiration is it? Is it aspiration where you have trouble swallowing and it goes down into the lungs or, you know, as during meals and so forth, or is it nocturnal supine aspiration related to, say, gastroesophageal reflux, which is actually extremely common. And so we do tend to see, as you say, you're absolutely correct, we tend to see this pattern of bronchiectasis, and it's exactly where you would expect to see it, in the lower lobes, usually posteriorly or toward the back, and uh, it's from years of, of, uh, of aspiration. Yes. And I think um, the reason it's so important to emphasize this is if, if you were to look at just and numbers, like, you know, they, they did this analysis of three different cohort studies, you know, and this was, uh, you know, probably eight years ago or so. So I think that um, these numbers would be a little different. But if you if, if they looked at, I, I'm saying, you know, four to 500 patients and they were looking at different causes of bronchiectasis. You know, they divided it up like idiopathic, meaning we don't know, which of course we hate that. And then they had post-infectious, like patients who had a history of pertussis as children or who had a prior history of a horrible pneumonia five years ago that they were hospitalized for. They And anyway, they break it down into these different disease associations. And there's only 2% that are associated with reflex or aspiration. And I really think it's an underrepresented group, meaning I think that there's a, a portion of those patients who are in that idiopathic category who probably um, do have an underlying pulmonary aspiration syndrome. It's so important to diagnose this for a variety of reasons, but, you know, because we can intervene on this, you know, there's we can address, you know, oftentimes swallowing derangement with just speech therapy and exercises and different modalities of addressing the, those aspiration issues, or even, you know, just doing a lot of education around this reflux issue and reflux precautions. Um, so I, I think it's really important to identify it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I and to that end, you know, I, I get this question a lot, which is that, you know, Dr. Swenson, I'm on reflux medication. So, so reflux is not the problem. Oh, right. And, and so I think there's this, this common misunderstanding that if you're on a proton pump inhibitor or if you're on an H2 blocker, so if you're on ranitidine or protonics, for example, that somehow that treats the reflux. And what, what I think we take time to explain to our patients is that that neutralizes the acids so it doesn't do as much damage to those airways um, or even the esophagus when they do reflux, but that it doesn't stop the reflux from happening. 
No, it does not. No, it does not. It is a it's a it's a mechanical issue, and unfortunately, the medications do not stop the reflux. And and like you, that's something that I explain pretty regularly to the patients. And uh, so, for those those of you who out there who don't know what uh, pertussis is, by the way, what Dr. Drummond is referring to is uh, commonly called whooping cough. So sometimes childhood infections, uh, you know, such as whooping cough, such as uh, varicella. Um, some there are some other causes as well. Infectious causes can actually lead to bronchiectasis from childhood. There's also really bad pneumonias, even in young adulthood, that can leave uh, scarring of the lung in its wake, which of course also leads uh, causes bronchiectasis as well. And the clue to that is that the bronchiectasis tends to be located in only one lobe, one or two lobes, as opposed to say you know a symmetrical or bilateral distribution. Well, yeah, and I think the classic history, and I, uh, this is one of the first things I ask when I'm getting getting my history from my patients in clinic is, do you have a history of pneumonia? And and they'll usually say, you know, if it was severe enough, it's it's memorable to them, right? So mm-hmm. they'll say, yes, I I had this right lower lobe pneumonia back in 2000. I they I was treated with oral antibiotics, or I was in the hospital for a week. And sure enough, on CT imaging you'll see a focal area of bronchiectasis that really corresponds quite nicely with that clinical history. So it's a really important history um, that that we do try to tease out from our patients. Um, One other category that I I wanted to mention that I don't think we've touched on yet is is talking about autoimmune disease. So there Uh is this this other bucket of of autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis being one of them, uh, Sjogren's. Sjogren's very commonly. Yes. Right. Right. It's a, it's sort of a classic association where you have these chronic inflammatory systemic processes that also can be associated with structural airway disease. Now, in this, in the case of like rheumatoid arthritis or even lupus, those patients may even have more of an interstitial lung disease process. So it brings like a whole nother layer of complexity to their illness. It sure does. And part of the, the challenge, too, is that the interstitial lung disease, and just so, so everybody understands what that is, it's, it's sort of inflammation that leads to scarring of the lung tissue itself. Not so much the airways, but the lung tissue itself, what's called the interstitium. And, and Wendy, I'm sure you've seen this, too, that you can end up with traction bronchiectasis, which is that, that, that scar tissue basically pulls those lower airways open so that even if it doesn't, if the autoimmune or connective tissue disease doesn't doesn't lead to bronchiectasis itself primarily, it can certainly cause it through secondary uh, action. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then I think there's this um, another bucket of an- anatomic defects, you know, like tracheomalacia, bronchomalacia, cartilage defects that have more um, exotic names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, lots yeah. of lots of exotic names. Any of our you listeners are interested, they us. can always on our website. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be happy to answer. But no, absolutely. There are some some um, diseases of the cartilage um, or deficiencies of the uh, of the uh, collagen vascular system that can certainly um, lead to to some exotic uh, sounding bron- bronchiectasis uh, conditions. And the, and the other thing, and, and this I think is, is somewhat common, and it's interesting to me because 
I think this can differ in whatever community people may come from, whether or not um, the, the immunologist slash allergist is managing these patients or whether it's the pulmonologist. But there is something called allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Absolutely. My, one of my favorites. Yeah. And so I, and people really get caught up on this with the aspergillosis piece to the name. We, we call it ABPA, but it's really an allergic reaction to that, that fungal pathogen that, that triggers this whole cascade, this whole inflammatory cascade in the airways. And, and they, these patients can develop bronchiectasis. They get, it's really characterized by just this incredible amount of mucus plugging. Like it is profound and and notable on the CT scan, I think you would say. Absolutely. In fact, the radiology sign, well, there are a couple radiology signs. One is the toothpaste sign, which I love. I think that's really cute. Um, and then there's, uh, there's finger and glove sign. That mucus can get so impacted in the airways that it looks almost like fingers in a glove on a chest x-ray. Um, and then of course, you know, there's uh, the, the, uh, the, the chest radiologist will refer to that mucus as ham, high attenuation mucus. It's literally so thick and so sticky that it gets stuck in there and it almost forms like a, almost a concrete type of material and becomes extremely difficult to bring up. Some of these patients though will in fact cough up these casts of this almost concrete-like material or rubber-like material. Well, and, and, and as you know, a lot of these patients actually have, if it's severe enough, they have occasionally therapeutic bronchoscopies. They sure do. Sure do. <laughs> to, yep. to address that. Yep. Now, now, fortunately, we're in an era where we've got some immune modulators that we can give folks with ABPA to hopefully, um, well, to treat this and, ho- and thereby hopefully prevent some of the more severe bronchiectasis that we can see. And with ABPA, the bronchiectasis that we typically see, and this is another clue on the chest CT, is the bronchiectasis tends to be very centrally located and more a little, a little bit more in the upper lobe, upper lobe predominant, but not always. Uh, but it tends to be much more central as opposed to peripheral, like say that we would see in in uh, MAC infection or NTM in general. Right, right. Which 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 uh, brings up a question I get all the time. I'm sure you get this too, Wendy. Chicken or the egg? Did the bronchiectasis lead to the MAC, or the MAC did it lead to the bronchiectasis? Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I tend to think in the vast majority of patients, and, and, and this does not mean 100%, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think anybody think, knows 100%. I, yeah, no, but I, I, I guess I, I came to believe over time that, that the vast majority of the time, I think bronchiectasis is the major player that predisposes someone to, to like the mycobacterial infection. But we also know that the chronic inflammation associated with mycobacterial infection can also potentiate bronchiectasis. And th- there you go. That's the, that's the chicken or the egg. So I guess the answer is chicken and the egg together. Yeah. 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 Well, we do know that patients, you know, for instance, with cystic fibrosis or who have very severe non-CF bronchiectasis are many times more likely to develop NTM. So that certainly goes along with bronchiectasis being a risk factor for NTM infection. But we also know that some of the 
these more mild bronchiectasis cases, sort of the typical, I guess, Wendy, plug your ears, you probably like this even less than I do, the quote, quote unquote, Lady Windermere syndrome, um, where you get sort of... <laughs> <laughs> it's wrong for a couple of reasons, folks. But the bigger reason uh, is that, you know, number one, it's not only women who get this disease. And number two, uh, Lady Windermere was named after the Oscar Wilde play in which the uh, the protagonist is actually a young woman with no respiratory symptoms of any kind. So it's a little bit of a, of, of a misnomer. But We'll, we'll put that aside. Um, but in that, that type of bronchiectasis, it tends to affect more the right middle lobe, right? Right upper lobe and the lingula classically. Right, right. Or, um, and I think sometimes people refer to it as right middle lobe syndrome, although I think that may be older nomenclature. Yes. Yes, it can certainly, certainly lead to a right middle lobe syndrome where, you know, that area just becomes so inflamed and scarred down and bronchiectatic that it just, it's very difficult to, you get all kinds of different infections in those areas. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to, to talk about this different nomenclature though, because I know that some patients, their ears will perk up and say, well, gosh, I was told that I had this right middle lobe syndrome 15 years ago or something years like that. Ago, years ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 Does that have anything to do with anything? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that can give you a sense about the chronicity of their illness too. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, the challenges are with, with our patient population is we know that there is this adverse impact on patient quality of life and patients with bronchiectasis, you know, they, and there's different factors. We, we can see a decline in their FEV1, which for those, our patients out there, you know, this is like that fifth vital sign when they get their spirometry done, you know, when mm-hmm. they do those breathing maneuvers, um, they have this chronic sputum production. We, we know that there's increased hospitalizations, more frequent infections, they can develop pseudomonas colonization. So just a whole host of issues that go along with this. And absolutely. So organ, and that's one of the reasons that that culturing the sputum pretty regularly is important. So those, that can be another clue that there's underlying bronchiectasis. If somebody's coughing up sputum, they send it for a sputum culture and it ends up yielding, say, you know, pseudomonas or stenotrophomonas or burkholderia or some of these other species. Those can also be clues that what we're dealing with is not, say, you know, a simple asthma or a simple COPD but in fact, bronchiectasis. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, in terms of management of our patients, you know, and we'll talk about this in other episodes. So, you know, something to look forward to. Stay tuned. But, but it's this whole multidisciplinary approach, but, you know, it's it's management of the bronchiectasis with good airway clearance. And mm-hmm. so I think that'll be a good lead into our, our next episode, but also management of exacerbations, making sure that there's good dietary support, prevention of infections with vaccinations, you know, all of these things that, that really go hand in hand and, and having a good respiratory therapist to partner with to help manage our patients. And respiratory therapist, as we mentioned in our last episode or in our introductory episode, you know, can be a really integral part in the treatment of bronchiectasis. Like I've said, it sort of takes a village, you know, it takes certainly um, a respiratory therapist, a pulmonologist, that's my plug for my own profession, um, an infectious disease, you know, physician, um, certainly uh, internists or primary care 
care provider. Um, everybody needs to be on board with uh, with treating this condition because, as you say, the patients with this diagnosis do tend to be more susceptible to exacerbation. Um, it, uh, hospital admissions, um, healthcare uh, uh, cost outlay or expenditures, and even in some cases, unfortunately, mortality, death. Yeah, and and one thing um, that that I would add too that we I think we may have touched on in the introductory episode. A lot of these patients have hemoptysis, and in the beginning, it might be unexplained hemoptysis. So when you go back to talking about those clues to diagnosis. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. when people should think about bronchiectasis, right? Is that unexplained hemoptysis? Yes, especially coughing up lots of blood, frank blood. That can be, that is not, that is not a typical finding in either asthma or COPD. So that can be a clue. Well, I think anything else that you wanted to, to discuss, Colin, in regards to... Gosh, I think... I. I know I I think we've we've uh, I think we've given the the listeners an earful when it comes to bronchiectasis but to that point if there is anything else that you'd like us to cover or anything that we didn't cover or any questions that we didn't answer although we certainly tried to plan for all of those questions please please visit the website ntm talk.com. N is in Nancy, T is in Tom, M is in Mary, talk.com. And send us a message on the website and we would be happy to answer you. If you agree to have your name read on the air, we would be happy to read your question on the air and uh, use it as a jump off uh, talk about other topics. Absolutely. I think that, you know, with the qu- the aspect of the questions, there's usually other people out there who are or want to ask thinking about the same questions. So we love that. It's, it's I think it's going to generate a lot of good discussion. Agree. Agree. Well, thanks so much, Wendy, for taking time to, uh, to chat. Um, always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too, Colin. It's really fun doing this and I'll be looking forward to our next episode, which I think is going to really be focusing on management of the bronchiectasis with airway clearance. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And we're actually going to uh, invite a respiratory therapist who specializes in airway clearance and bronchiectasis um, to give us his viewpoint. And so we're really excited about um, having him on. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. All right, Wendy, that's all for now. We'll talk more next week about that topic and more on NTM Talk. In the meantime, please stay safe and stay well, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening in.